Welcome to Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. I am your host, Lori McGraw. I have spent the past 30 years in leadership, and over the years, I've come to learn one thing. Women need women, and not just any women, but inspiring women. Tune in every week to hear from women at the pinnacle of their careers and from others who are just starting out. Episodes can be found at inspiringwomen.show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. This is Inspiring Women, and we've been for two years talking about women in leadership, the progress in women in leadership, and the headwinds that women have in terms of how they advance to leadership. So I wanted to do today's episode and actually get a little bit of grounding in where are we, what are today's headwinds and opportunities. So I brought on, I'm delighted to be speaking to Elisabetta Bartoloni, an expert in this area. She is a partner at Hydric and Struggles. Hydric and Struggles is a global firm, 70 years in leadership development, executive search. Um, Elisabetta is 20 years in executive search. She's both a partner. She also is the co-chair of the WIN Network, which is developing women within the company of Hydric and Struggles. And Elisabetta, thank you for being on Inspiring Women. Thank you so much, Lori, for having me. I've watched a number of uh, your Inspiring Women uh, episodes, and uh, I really enjoy the content. So thank you for having me, and thank you for the audience uh, for listening. Well, I am looking forward to the conversation because I really wanted to get, you know, sort of a level set. Like, where are we? We're in a new world of leadership development in terms of um, post-pandemic, lots of discussions about people needing to come back to the office finally, finally. But before we even begin, why don't we start with a little bit about you, Elisabetta? Like, what do you do? 20 years executive search, 13 years at Hydric and Struggles, a partner. Um, you know, how did, give us a little bit of backstory. How how did you get there? What does day-to-day look like? Absolutely, happy to. So I arrived uh, to New York in 1997 for um, because I won a scholarship to go to NYU. And it was an exchange program. And when I arrived, I fell in love with the city. I fell in love with the people, with the energy, and really the ability to shape your career here. So uh, my first job was uh, in financial services was at Goldman Sachs in banking. And then I spent a little stint there. And then in 2000, I moved to executive search. And I've been in executive search, as you said, since then. Uh, my focus has always been financial services. And so my clients are financial services institutions that are looking for executive talent across the capital markets. So also trading and research and investment banking. So as you said before, I lead our America's global markets practice for the firm. And I also co-lead our Amer- America's inclusion, women inclusion network. I want to talk about that um, inclusion network because that, you know, that you have that within a firm that's focused on workforce development, just um, as its mission is just interesting in and of itself. But before we get to that, can you just talk about, you know, sort of like today's executive leaders, what are the, what makes a successful executive in today's climate and how is that perhaps different than maybe even five years ago or 10 years ago, as you've been 
been working on this for 20 years. Yes, absolutely. So I would say that even before pandemic, there was an interest or in, or understanding of the importance of putting people first for when it comes to leadership, when it comes to CEOs. However, the pandemic, as you mentioned, has accelerated a lot of these trends and the importance of really for the C-suites to think about and to focus on empathy and inclusion. In addition, I would say that um, all the you know social issues that have arised in the last few years have also spotlighted the importance for leaders to take a position and really help their employees navigating those feelings. So empathy and inclusion. So these are these are skills that you know they seem more female leading in terms of you know what they are. They're skills that perhaps women leaders are more naturally inclined um, to be. Is that helping women advance into leadership if those are more the focus? Maybe even define a little bit for us. What 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 does it mean? What does it mean to be an empathetic leader? I know it sounds like such a basic question, but how do you know whether someone really has it or doesn't? Well, I actually think Gloria is a very good question because it's not very easy to understand if the leader is actually going to have in, an inclusive style of leadership. So there are uh, different assessment tools that now are being used, not only to assess the leaders that you're hiring from the outside, but also to assess the leaders that you have inside your organizations and how to really help them to grow into that skill set. Uh, to your point also, yes, these skills are female, probably more female-oriented, you would think. And uh, But I also think that also these skill sets are not easier necessarily to master than those hardcore skills that we always have talked about in the past that could be more, you know, finance-related or strategy and so on. So to go back to what you were saying, to what you were asking, in terms of uh, what is really empathy. Empathy is the ability to really understand and connect, I would say, with your organization, with your team, and understanding what their needs and what desires are. But at the same time, it is not to just be liked by everybody. So a leader needs to still, with authority and confidence, be able to uh, exercise is you know, leadership and making an ability to make decisions when it comes to business decisions. But what has changed, Lori, is the communication that has to happen from the top to every level of the organization. So you're not just going to make the decision. You also have to be able to communicate why. So why we're making this decision, how you're going to implement it, and when is going to take, um, you know, it's going to be in effect. So those are very important traits that a leader has to think about is a different communication style. We talked about also about um, humble leaders. And so, but again, a humble leader is not someone that would just take everybody's opinion and you know, and not exercise his own authority and leadership. Um, so that's what I would say empathy is. Um, inclusiveness is something that, uh, as I said, is key. And how do you how do you continue 
perform that in an organization is changing. It's about it's about progress versus perfection. And we have seen how a lot of training also is evolving. We have seen a lot of unconscious bias training, for example, that originally we thought it was going to be really effective and it has not been. So again, it's a work in progress, but it's, it's, but it's a very important work that I can tell you a lot of CEOs are doing off top of organizations. Um, we do a lot of service at Hydric, and it's something that uh, I'm very proud of because we base a lot of our findings on really research. And I'll tell you a couple of surveys that I've, uh, we have done, and I thought it was very revealing. So first of all, we interviewed a number of CEOs across different countries in what are the key drivers for financial performance in their organization. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S., as in most of the other countries that we look, not all of them, but in most of the other countries that we look, culture is number one. Yep. Strategy is number two. Talent is third. Operating model is fourth. And then is leadership. So few years. And ago, is that different? Is that different than what it used to be? I mean, I would have expected operational performance and strategy to be, you know, top of the pyramid. Exactly right. So it has changed. Now everybody recognizes that culture is a key driver for financial performance. Mm -hmm. So that is a big change. We also have done another survey, for example, where we have um, basically uh, ask 3,000 employees across all levels of different companies uh, what they felt about the culture of their firm. And we have asked them a variety of questions regarding simplicity, inclusivity, and so on and so forth. And what we have realized is that the individuals that scored highest in terms of what they felt about the culture, the, you know, the positive culture of their firm, are the ones that actually belong to the firms that have double of the financial performance respect to the others that scored at the lowest. I think so this is I think this is the key, right? I mean, just and and this is what remains to me just so befuddling because financial performance, which is such an you know, is a very those are very clear metrics. When those are tied to culture, inclusivity, showing up as your authentic self, a sense of belonging, and yet those are more I, I think challenging to figure out how to define. Um, I've seen, and I'm sure you see, we you know we've seen a decline in the number of DEI executives um, that are out there. There was this big surge sort of mid-pandemic to hire these new executives, but yet as the um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, tighter budgets, perhaps those are executives that have been lost. So, so in terms of how you coach, encourage people to develop those skills, um, if they don't necessarily naturally have them, what do you ask them to pay attention to, to measure themselves by, to know that they are providing that empathy, that inclusivity, that sense of belonging for their employees? Yeah, it's it's a lot of more work around understanding uh, not only what they've done, but how they've done it. So is the how that now becomes very important is also what is the purpose in the way they lead. 
So there are a variety of different, I would say, it, they might be similar questions, but there is a different accent on those questions. Uh, the other piece is, of course, to get in it through a lot of more referencing. Those are key, the understanding how really the people around those leaders have felt throughout their leadership. Does it so, matter whether people are in the office or not in the office? How much of that plays into the ability to build culture in that um, high performance way? Oh, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely changing, no question. Not being in the office creates a variety of different, um, I don't know if challenges, but definitely different dynamics that leaders have, um, you know, are taken in consideration. And so it's more attention to creating more social events, uh, more uh, gatherings outside of, you know, uh, outside of just going to the office every day, because as you said, not many people go. Um, so it's really a different attention. So how to create that community, not only in the office, but outside of the office. Yep. Yep. Well, these things really speak to, and they're encouraging for the opportunity for women in leadership. Let's focus on women in leadership. So, you know, Hydric and Struggles, you have, I believe it's about 400 consultants who are in the area of executive search, you know, just reading through your ESG report, you're placing at the board level and CEO level, 67%, you know, nearly 70% in the United States, over 70 of diverse candidates, which is our are exceptional um, numbers, yet we also know there still is a gap. So it seems like there's opportunities. We know there's progress, you know, so there's still maybe we've crossed the 10% mark of Fortune 500 CEOs who are women. We have over 12% of the richest people in the world at the billionaire level who are women. And those perhaps are encouraging just as we're seeing sort of women having an economic moment with movies like Barbie and Beyonce and Taylor Swift and all those things. Yet you and I both know the amount of work still to be done to advance gender equity at the leadership level is enormous. So could you just talk about, Elisabetta, the um, state of play? Are we making the requisite progress? Um, what are you seeing as you work with your teams placing executives every day? Yes. Yeah, so, so I I think we are certainly making progress in the way I see also our clients coming to us for not only recruiting on diverse talent, but also advice of how to make, as we talked about before, an inclusive culture and so on. Because as you said, Hydric not only does executive search, but also does consulting at the human capital level. So I see a lot of work that clients hire us for is around DNI journey, how to make your firm more inclusive and, and so on and so forth. Um, so we're making progress. That doesn't mean that you will see increasing numbers every year after year, right? Sometimes we go a little bit forward and we go a little bit backwards and then we go back, you know, and then we go forward faster. So it's not necessarily a linear, unfortunately, um, in progress, but it is definitely progress. Now, um, there's still a lot of work to do, Lori, there's no question. So what what do we see? We see more women in leadership roles, however, that are not PNL roles. So, so for example, we see a lot of more women in general counsel role or um, chief marketing officers role. 
but we don't see uh, the same growth in heads of divisions where you actually do have PL. And those roles tend to lead you more to a CEO seat than a GC. I think I, I think we don't talk about that enough, you know, in terms of advising women own a PL. If you have the opportunity to own a PL, take that opportunity. It is a absolute stepping stone. And Elizabeth, I know you do so much work yourself in terms of advising. You have an entire video series that you advise other professionals um, who are doing executive search in terms of how to help and develop um, folks. But we, you talk about the leaky pipeline um, at, and I've talked about it at the executive level. I've heard you talk about, we need to go even further back to build that pipeline. Can you speak to that? Where do we need to begin the conversations, developing women, developing girls um, to be leaders? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, you know, if you do, if you look at research, when, if you ask girls, Gen Z girls, which is really like the 11 to 18, 19, 20 years old, um, at that at very early on, if you ask them, what do you want to do when you grow up? Very few will say, I want to be a CEO. If you ask the same amount of boys, you will have much more of that. So the idea, and you know, I actually am on the board and I've been on the advisory board of this organization, and now I'm going to be on officially on the board of this organization called um Girls with Impact, and uh, it was it started by this woman Jennifer Oppershaw around six years ago. And the idea is really start is start early in in shaping someone's mindset. In this case, girls that they actually can be CEOs, even if they don't have many models, right? They don't have they don't see uh, you know a lot of CEOs women, but they can gain the skills. Uh, and the presentations and the financial skills and everything, the leadership, the entrepreneurship to be the CEO. So this course, for example, that was developed with Harvard, because that's what this organization does, is basically um, teaching these young girls uh, how to be CEOs. So uh, it's an e-learning program. It's something that you do online. And uh, and as I said, is going to really reinforce or educate these young girls around entrepreneurship, leadership, finance, and so on. And at the end of the course, they have to create a venture. They have to be the CEO of a venture. So now they can. And I'll tell you, because I've seen a lot of these girls going through the program, and I've seen that at 14, 16 years old, and they now have three or four ventures, they're CEOs of three or four companies, <laughs> which is incredible. And their ability to be comfortable in front of an audience is beautiful to watch because it's something that we all learn late in, in life. Uh, their level of confidence really is to a whole new, you know, it's very high and, and it's beautiful to see. So my point is, I think going, you know, early on and really make, these um, women feel that they can. If they want, they can. 
That is an amazing, amazing program. It's heartwarming um, to hear it. I can imagine not only is it incredibly impactful, but um, you can just sort of, you know, hear your joy that's coming out of um, watching these younger women evolve um, with that opportunity. Um, but that's not all in terms of what you do, in terms of you um, you practice what you preach. And um, so tell me, in Hydric and Struggles, again, a billion-dollar um, organization, a global organization, you are the co-chair of the WIN, the Women's Network, the employee resource group for the organization. Why do you have such a thing um, within the organization, and what do you do? Absolutely. So first of all, Hydric not only helps its clients, uh, of course, um, in DNI journeys, but is very focused on doing a, a walk in the walk. So many years ago, and I think the Women Inclusion Network was our first ERG that we developed uh, five or six years ago. Um, we wanted to really create a firm internally that was going to be an example. So our uh, Women ERG was uh, created with four pillars. Basically, the first one is to be a think tank. So what are the potential policies that we should think about improving, changing within the organization that are affecting our members and can really make their lives better? So for example, many years ago, we identified that our, our um uh, parental leave was um, not up to what it should have been. And we raised that to the top and we changed it. So now we have um, paternity and maternity leave policy that is, you know, one of the best on the street. Um, so think tank is one of the pillars. The second one is learning and development. We realized that we wanted to continue, of course, grow with our skill set and sometimes you know women don't have that training early on around being comfortable in front of an audience so how do we develop these skills so we created a lot of different and we hired a lot of external consultants mm -hmm. to come in and teach us um the third pillar is around really creating a community where those difficult conversations could be could take place in a safe environment. And then the fourth one is giving back, giving back to the community and really participate in and sponsor these organizations that are really making a difference. So Girls with Impact is one, Luminar is another one, the American Heart Association is another one. And they're all, you know, different, different level of, um, you know, seniority that they potentially uh, address or different pro problems. The American Heart Association is about clearly health. Mm -hmm. And the reason why we decided to sponsor and participate is because cardiovascular disease or diseases, um, they kill more women. Than Number one. All, all cancers combined, all types yep. of cancers combined, which I was shocked when I learned that. Yep. So, so these are examples of um, of of organizations that we sponsor. But Hydric is all. We don't only have the Women and Inclusion Network or Women ERG, how a lot of people call it. We have people of color. We have disabilities. We have veterans. We have pride. We have a lot of these different. Um, 
you know, ERGs. And what I think has changed, because now, as I said, it's like five years, is that we come together. So a lot of our events right now are intersectionality events. So we, we the topic is a topic that affects different ERGs, and we yeah. all come together to talk about it. So yeah. we're not talking about our problem just with us. We want to be inclusive going back to the, what you were saying and really have this conversation more publicly. I think these are so important. And I love the outline that you, the outline that you just gave, because it's more than just an affinity group, mm -hmm. um, which is um, important and social and feeling like you're with like-minded or like others, but you have policy, you have advocacy, you have giving back in terms of what you're doing. And I think that is such an important recipe, not just for the members within your company, but also for what is in front of us, which is whether it's coming back to the office or the evolving cultures like you started on. These have been really, really wonderful points. And I just so appreciate, Elizabeth, you talking to us um, on Inspiring Women about them. As we close out on this conversation on where we are with women in leadership, I would just love it if you could give sort of, I mean, you give so much advice um, freely to others as well as publicly, maybe just a tidbit that, you know, so maybe a tried and true, something that really has worked for you that you could close out and share with our audience, please. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm happy to. And a few, uh, one thing that always happened to me, helped me throughout my career, um, and it's pretty simple, it seems simple, but it's not necessarily as simple as it sounds, which really is spending 80% uh, of your time on the solution and 20% on the problem. I think a lot of us, tend to like rehash the problem. You wanna hear all the different parts of the problem and then you're exhausted when you get to the solution, <laughs> you know, invert it. And I think that's very helpful to me. But the other piece that I would say for women as they think about building their career in their organization, one, continue to build your ecosystem of supporters, men, women, it doesn't matter. Uh, and both actually, it's even better. But is you're not gonna rise to the top by yourself. This is not a homework at school. Um, you you need an ecosystem that will support you going up and staying up. So that is very important. The other piece is uh, you talked about advocacy is very important. So when you know you get into a role and. Um, Maybe things change. Maybe you know you thought that uh, there were some responsibilities that were given to you, or your title was in a certain way, and then things change. I've seen that, Laurie, a lot of women instead of going to their boss and say, "Well, you know, what's up with this? Mm -hmm. uh, why is this change? What does it mean?" Um, they tend to make a lot of assumptions and then look for another job. And when mm -hmm. I ask them, did you ever bring this up to your boss? They're like, no, I didn't. Yes. So, uh, and it, listen, it takes courage and it takes, and, and it's, that's totally understandable. But if you have the entourage around you, you'll feel better. And if the conversation goes well, great. If it doesn't, then you know early where you stand. And at least it would have been a great experience and a great practice. 
That is such good advice. I mean, that's like a three pieces of great advice, you know, 80% on the problem, advocating for yourself, building your support network. And you're right, it does, it does take courage, but it's also a faster path to whatever the next fantastic thing is um, for someone in their leadership journey. Um, this has been such a great conversation, Elisabetta. I cannot thank you enough um, for being on Inspiring Women. As we close out again, thank you so so very much. Thank you, Lori, for having me. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.